The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field Welcome to the Energy and Transition Podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the Upright Digital Studios in Houston, Texas. I am joined, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Hello, Mr. Pickering. Josh, greetings. How are you, man? <laughs> greetings. I'm doing well, sir. Good. I am... Uh, I was trying to, you know, we talk at the beginning of these shows. I was trying to think what we're going to talk about. You had a good idea. We were... Uh, the Super Bowl's coming up. Yes. Um, I, I'm pretending it's a good idea. I know nothing about football, so... You know, my knowledge of, I do think, I'm embarrassed, Chiefs and Eagles. Correct. So I do know the two teams. Yes. Um, couldn't tell you a Neither one of on my teams team. made yeah. it, so I don't really care. Right, right. You were lamenting the Cowboys. Yes, and the Texans obviously yes. just barely missed it. Yeah, Texas just outside the playoff race. Who's going to who's gonna win? I have no clue. Well, you have to take Literally. a guess. You have to take a Eagles. Yeah, that's probably Because I love the movie Invincible with Mark Wahlberg. Yes. And he was a big Eagles guy. Yeah, um, I think that's who's going to win as well. I'm a big uh, Patrick Mahomes guy. Mm. So I think I think the Eagles are going to win, though. They look really good. What always blows me away, Patrick Mahomes takes off his helmet, and the guy's like, what, 24 years old, 25 years old? He's 28 and was the oldest quarterback in the playoffs at 28. But, but that, that's what's mind-blowing is, I mean, I got kids older than this guy. So it's, I mean, it's crazy yeah. that, that you think of them as – these performance machines, right? And I mean, you go down to college basketball, they're kids, they're 19 year olds, 20 year olds. Speaking of performance machine, um, I have a a 12 year old son and I was trying to teach him how to kick a soccer ball like dad used to do it back in the day. And I took him out Saturday to try to show him how to kick a ball as hard as possible without warming up, which is the smart thing to do. Uh, I can barely walk on my right leg. I don't know if you've seen me limping around the office today. I have, I have pulled something in the front of my leg, and I've Googled it. So I either have cancer in my right leg or a level two quad pull. So everything ends in cancer, if you Google it, or a level two <laughs> quad pull. So, I'm going with the level two quad pull. I'm hoping that's what yes, it is. I, I so it's that's... a six-week injury is what I'm learning. Wow. So I'm not the elite athlete that I thought I was, I guess is what I'm trying to get yes. to. It's been a rough couple of days. The good news is we invite the elite athletes to come on this podcast. Oh, the elite so energy athletes. So good at this. Yes. So I'm using that as the transition. Perfect. To introduce our guests. So we're joined today by Marianne Berlinski. Marianne, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, rather than me talk about your resume and what you've done and what you're doing. Um, tell us a little bit about you and then we're going to explore forward around kind of 
your views around power markets and energy transition and all things sort of in between. But but who are you and what are you about? Thanks, Dan. Uh, so Marianne Berlinski, I am an upstate New York girl, a small town called Herkimer. Uh, married my high school sweetheart. Oh, went wow. to engineering school. Uh, first job out of college was with Exxon in Baytown, Texas, making mm. ethylene for a living. Uh, when I came on my site visit, I had never been to Texas before. I was expecting uh, cactus and tumbleweed. and as Cowboys I, and spurs. Uh-huh, yep. And as soon as I exited, you know, Hobby Airport, I remember calling my mom saying, there's like grass and palm trees and water. Um, fell in love with Texas. We have uh, been living here since 96. Mm. Have three boys, identical twins that uh, just are 20 years old. And then my baby who is 18. Oh, going to college this All year? All three are uh, at university in Colorado. I got two at CU Boulder and one at College of Mines, a chemical engineer. So, so yeah, I don't know what I've done, but they all have flown the nest uh, to Colorado. Wow. I mean, and so you're an empty nester now. Empty nester for the first time, unemployed for the first time in my life. Um, you know, I've been content- in between opportunities is how in we be- categorize yes. it. Okay, yes. well, um, yes. but you, you're the good kind of unemployed. I think you got paid to be unemployed, yes. which is the way that's yeah, a nice way to do it. Event. Yes. Um, so it's really been a gift. Yeah, it has been a gift. So Ben, um, thinking about what is going to be next for me uh, over the last couple months have been talking to lots of people. It is such an interesting time to be in energy. I mean, the the scope and the the breadth of what is out there from opportunity wise is is pretty um, incredible and so really uh, appreciate your podcast have listened to a lot of other mm. fellow energy enthusiasts yeah um we're great aren't we this you are fantastic <laughs> that's it's just amazing well yeah keep going I, we, well, you we know what, this. I, what i what i it's not a worry but i think if I were sitting in your shoes today, one of the hardest parts, I, I use this analogy of the Cheesecake Factory. If you go to the Cheesecake Factory, we may have talked about this. The menu it's is really long. Yes, it is. And there are so many things you could have that you sit there for 30 minutes deciding what you're going to have. And what you're talking about is when the world is your oyster, there's, you know, there's mm-hmm. so many facets of energy these days. You've got to... You know, you've been in the trading business and power and there's there's natural gas markets there's the energy transition business there's big companies there's small companies i mean it's a lot it's a lot and i think um for me starting off focusing on what i didn't want to eat at the cheesecake mm-hmm. factory has been easier way to kind of tackle yeah. that problem because those i think are pretty clear on what's not interesting mm-hmm. um i uh was lucky enough to listen to uh interview Stephen Colbert did in New York City a couple weeks ago and someone in the audience asked him how do you decide what projects you're going to work on and he said we have you know a a poster in the writer's room and it says if it's not hell yeah it's hell no Mm. and I I think that that really resonated with me that you know for the last 15 years I have worked for an amazing company I've had my dream job the last five and uh, this opportunity to kind of step back and, and take a look at the industry, kind of what does energy transition really mean? You know, who's, who's gonna be coming into this space, new entrants, who the um, winners and losers, I think with the IRA and, and you know, the, the capital flowing into this space, mm-hmm. um, we're gonna see a lot of disruption 
in an industry that histor- historically has seen a lot of disruption. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to get back in yeah. the game. Well, let's take a step back. You said you've worked for a great company for 15 years and five in a dream job. So tell us about the company and then tell it what was the dream job. Yeah, so I've spent the last uh, 15 years with EDF, Electricity de France. De France. Not the Environmental Defense Fund. Yes. If you Google EDF in the U.S., you are much more likely to find uh, the other, okay. the other EDF. Yes. Um, so, you know, 15 years ago, I was at Lehman Brothers. You may mm. have heard of them. Yes. Um, Lehman went bankrupt. Doing what? I was running their Texas commodity business. Okay. So Lehman Brothers. So you selling hedges or well, trading or? All of the above. Okay. Uh, so EDF, um, prior to EDF, Lehman Brothers. Prior to Lehman Brothers, I was working for a small company called Empower as a startup. Um, had left, it's kind of going in, in reverse a bit, but had left a job at Reliant, so big energy company, decided I wanted to go small startup. Um, Empower had 22 people. Wow. So okay. it was running a real-time desk, hedging a book, marking curves. What kind of book? Power book? Power book and gas book. Okay. Uh, natural gas and electricity. Um, was really excited to be creating my own destiny at this small you know, startup company. And three months later, we were bought by Eagle Energy. So it was Chuck Watson and the mm-hmm. former Dynagy, Dynagy crew. Uh, we were Eagle six months, and then Chuck sold us to Lehman Brothers. So I was sitting in my seat in Houston. Um, My grandmother called and asked me why I couldn't hold down a job. Uh, Sounds like you were swapping business cards pretty quickly. There was a lot of change in that, you know, six, seven time frame. Um, 2006 and seven, yeah. 2006 and Mm -hmm. seven, yeah. And uh, so, so, you know, with the Lehman Brothers um, role was really, they had bought uh, Eagle Energy to do their physical power and physical gas business out of Houston, and they looked at financial trading um, businesses up in New York. So we had customers, small retail presence, dispatching power stations. So if you, you know, were a hedge fund or private equity and you you bought a power plant and you didn't know what to do with it, you'd hire us to schedule fuel supply, hedge, settle, optimize the assets. Um, my role specifically. So third party. So you were you were basically a third party solutions. Correct. For power businesses or power assets. Very asset light. So you think about. Empower uh, was. Correct. Or an eagle. Yeah. Yeah, an eagle, and even then Lehman. If you looked at what we were um, doing at Lehman out of the the Houston office was very customer focused mm-hmm. business. Um, now we were only Lehman just under a year before the bankruptcy, and that time frame and we could see the writing on the walls of what was happening on Wall Street and it was uh, not necessarily an easy time to be in the commodity business either. Uh-huh. So Lehman went bankrupt the same weekend that Hurricane Ike hit Houston. I remember it very well. Yes mm-hmm. and so I um, was running our Texas Gulf Coast power business for, for Lehman wow. Brothers yeah, we were very lucky. If you remember, the weather was very mild that weekend, so a lot of power stations uh, didn't have to to run. Um, it was such an interesting time because you know we lost our parents. We had no letters of credit. All of a sudden, you're a commodity shop running power stations and selling electricity and natural gas with with no credit support. Um, we were really lucky that Chuck Watson actually had hung around through that process, and within a week, he had three buyers. Um, lined up, and it was a Canadian bank, a big natural gas company, and then this 
foreign entity EDF. That, the Environmental know, Defense Fund. That is exactly. As you Googled it. Exactly. Um, so Electricity to France. So, you know, with that, um, within a week, EDF had picked us up out of the Lehman bankruptcy, um, had put parental guarantees, letters of credit in place, and it was a fantastic marriage of physical power, physical gas here in the U.S. with a company that was looking for a foothold in North America. They were looking at, you know, they had done the deal with the nuclear assets and, and Constellation. They were looking at global gas markets. They really liked the idea of having an entity who is doing some incubator type work in the U.S. If you think about our markets, nodal markets, smart meter rollout, a lot of digital innovation happens here in the U.S. first. And to have a group that was, was seeing how people were reacting to that, whether it's customers, producers, mm. was really, for them, a, a compelling uh, answer. So uh, it ended up being EDF Trading okay. of the EDF groups that bought um, the entity. And so uh, since 2008, um, started you know with, with EDF running the Texas business. Um, in 2010, I got promoted to business development and origination. So uh, CEO had come over and said, so, so, "All right, sorry. Yeah. Before you do that, so what is the, what does that mean in a in a trading business? What does business development origination really mean?" So said another way, prior to, to getting that role, running Texas, I had trading for our Texas um, uh, power and natural gas. I had power stations selling um, to retail business. It was lots of ways to touch the commodity so from when it's produced by the generator or, or from a wellhead if it's a, a mmbtu trade optimize whether it's time value locational arbitrage commodity spreads and then sell it to the end users of that energy mm -hmm. so that model in texas works really well um the physical and financial all um, along the value chain. Correct. Got touch it. touch the commodity multiple times. Mm -hmm. You don't have to make, make a, a little bit. Along make way. a little bit lots and Every lots time. of times. Yeah. Um, build relationships, get customer flow, and it, it really ends up snowballing into some meaningful business. Uh, and in 2010, our CEO came over. We were organized regionally, and uh, he gave my here's update of what's happening in Texas. And he said, Why doesn't the rest of the country look like Texas? And I said. I'm not responsible for the rest of the country. I'm responsible for Texas. And two weeks later, I was told, no, we want you to go build out what you did in, in Texas mm. across the country. Mm -hmm. We want to have this integrated business model. We want to do business with power stations, gas producers. We're going to trade, hedge, optimize, and we're going to build out this retail platform. Because at that time, we only were serving and use customers in ERCOT yeah. in Texas. So, so in 2008... We have a European utility that wants in on U.S. hydrocarbon power production. And we didn't have a lot of renewables at that point. I assume that came in Correct. over time. Mm -hmm. But I'm just I'm setting the stage because the perception today is European companies don't want to have anything to do with any, any sort of fossil fuel stuff. So well, we'll hit that in a minute. France but. leads the way with that, too, really. Kind of. Um, so they said, do it all across the United States. Build it out. Um, and, you know, my background in engineering, got my MBA from University of Houston, go Cougs, mm. um, took a job with Dynagy 
right after finishing my MBA. And my first job there was managing a power station, which I had no business doing. I didn't know what a megawatt was. Um, but I spent the first two weeks, went out to the plant, brought kolaches and donuts, listened to the operators complain about, you know, having to go out there and turn the valves, figured out pretty quickly how to optimize it and whether it's you know, chemicals, refining, power, it's a lot of the same, uh, you know, uh, ancillary problems that you face when you have people and machinery and uh -huh. customers and demanding products. Um, Dynagy was such an amazing place to work in that it was polar opposite from Exxon, where I'd come from. Um, Exxon's very structured, big company. Dynagy was fly by the seat of your pants, wild, wild west. But I was one of those nerds who, you know, the Texas market was deregulating. I read the ERCOT protocols, um, tried to figure out how this new power uh, market was going to work. And it was such, it's one of those times where it's better to be lucky than good. Because at that point in time, nobody knew more than you did. Uh -huh. Everything was brand new. Mm. And so, you know, going back on when I knew that I absolutely loved power markets and get super excited about going to work every day and facing those challenges. It has been over the last 20 years, the most amazing ride. And at every single point in time, there's been that, you know, uh-oh moment where what's happening? How are we going to deal? And, you know, you mentioned renewables. The, the, it's had its uh-oh moments. Um, crypto has created some uh-oh moments for us here in, in Texas. You know, I think with the IRA power from a power grid yeah. mm -hmm. absolutely you look at how much energy data centers you know when i was uh when i started Morning. in this space the refineries and the chem plants those were the loads that were really big energy consumers in the state and if you were a retailer those were the guys you wanted to have as customers you know it quickly turned to you're selling power if you're selling power mm -hmm. it quickly turned to no i mean the data centers that we have in this state consume more energy than that entire Exxon complex in Baytown. And and it is it is phenomenal when you look at what the Texas power grid has had to do over the last 20 years to keep up with um, not just the load growth that we have seen in this state, but also how people use energy. The intermittency, the wind, you know, the solar, adding all of that plus the, the new demand constraints of, of what our industries are doing, we still have our chem and refining, but you also have all these tech loads that behave very differently um, than traditional energy consumer. So that, I mean, that that smells like volatility. I mean, my, my perception, if we go all the way back to the early Enron days, I remember I was just, I was blown away by this thought of Enron was early on the physical plus the financial and all these embedded options in things, right? And so notwithstanding that blew up, it feels like that idea has really continued on and and managing the physical plus the financial. I mean, it's been very, I mean, it's been a huge business and um, and, and a lot of change, as you just mentioned. So we've come a long way in that period of time. Do the, you, you ran Texas and then you ran everything else. Does the rest of the, does the rest of the market work like Texas? Because I mean, we're, aren't we a little bit of an island, less connected to everything else? So, I mean, talk a little bit about the rest of the country. Well, you know, when, when 
the CEO called me up and said, you know, we want you to run O-Ridge and business development for North America. My first reaction was, no, you can't make me. You know, I, That's I'm, too I'm, hard. A, I'm a Texas girl. Yeah. I, you know, these are, these are the, this is the market I know. What I quickly figured out is when we generate a megawatt, when it goes across a transmission line and gets consumed at a meter by an end user, the physics of that work the same everywhere. Uh-huh. Now, you know, job security, we change the acronyms. Uh, we change, you know, capacity market, energy market, but ultimately we're keeping frequency at 60 hertz. We're managing uh, weather, you know, outage maintenance, people's consumption, keep the lights on. Um, that, those, those fundamental, you know, uh, table stakes are the same everywhere. So once you get over the vernacular and you uh-huh. get the vocabulary and, you know, the first whole bunch of meetings I was in, I've got my phone under the table and I'm Googling what's a CRR versus an FTR yes. versus a TCR. It's all the same thing. Hmm. Josh and I are doing that right now yeah. while you're... Well, yeah. Dan was killing it. He's the acronym guy, so... I'm, well, I'm this, it's not for the faint of heart. You, you know, working for energy company, you know, uh, in France, one of the things you have to be careful is we get really comfortable using our own acronyms Mm -hmm. and and i will tell you folks in in edf across the world are amazing energy people they get it they're smart um so you just gotta lay off the acronyms right gotta figure out how to talk to them in in the universal language right um so so tell us a little bit i mean you're probably the best guest we've had in terms of knowledge of the u.s power grid and high praise you ready for this game time with yeah and so um we hear we the royal we i hear everything from it's broken in no way that it can sustain the load of what's coming from the electrification of everything uh to status quo is fine don't worry about it markets always kind of fix themselves etc etc i mean so internal combustion engine vehicles in theory um, you know, the electrification of everything, all this big build out of wind and solar. I mean, how's it all going to play out? It scares me. Um, I, and I was going to say terrified, but I, I don't want to be too yeah. alarmist. I, I think when you look at, and, and let's focus maybe on Texas for a minute, because it just be easier to, to get our arms around it. When you look at um, the electrification of everything and, the, and on the demand side on the demand side we're gonna we're gonna electrify the transportation fleet we have not built out the transmission infrastructure to accommodate that in neighborhoods that have too many teslas we're seeing distribution problems i think that what's that, what's that mean Di- distribution so, problems so the teslas suck it up and and the guy next door doesn't have his correct, lights on correct it's um if you think about um if everybody's charging their cars at the same time the amount of demand that that's putting on those fixed wires that were put in 20 years ago mm-hmm. before you know elon had his idea of of the the amazing car that is now the tesla um we are asking our infrastructure to do things that it was never designed to do mm-hmm. and you know I see that from both the electric infrastructure and transmission and natural gas infrastructure. If you look at how we're using peaking um, power stations and we're ramping 
you know, those gas-fired plants up and down based on wind forecast and solar ramping. We are flexing the system in a way that when it was put in place 50 years ago um, was not contemplated. So we, we really need to be thinking um, about our aging infrastructure in this country, how uh-huh. to protect it, and then how to make it fit for purpose around all of this intermittency that yep. we have injected into the, into the system. Uh-huh. And I guess the way you just described it, what that would say is in the world of where the power is generated, wind and solar are one, because now the whole rest of the grid has to adopt to them. Well, is that I think, right? Well, it was always an intent. I mean, you look at we as society made the decision that we want to go green. We want wind, we want solar, we want clean air, we want clean water. I think everybody can get behind that. Um, I think in Texas, we are a, a, a victim of our own success in that it's relatively, developers would argue with this, relatively easy to build stuff here, to uh-huh. get the permits, to get the interconnect. Um, and Interconnect what, to the grid. To the power grid, uh-huh. yeah. And inter- interconnects to natural gas infrastructure. I mean, Texas is a very friendly place to do business. And because we are friendly and we open arms and want lots of that economic activity here, um, we have suffered this influx of intermittent wind and solar. And the renewables teams will tell you, they know wind's intermittent. They've, opened every, they've not been shy no about surprise. it. So don't, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like, don't try to demonize them. Right. They, they knew, right. we knew this. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, I think one of, one of the, the problems that we like to move fast, we like to, um, I think, you know, the corporate cultures of getting deals done and building things, it's part of our DNA in this country. And unfortunately, the, the time horizons around traditional utilities, so building wires, is much longer than it is our regulatory framework, which is even longer than our ability to go build, um, you know, new generation assets. And mm-hmm. So, you know, part of the problem is we deployed a lot of renewables without pairing them up with batteries. Yep. And so instead of having them in lockstep, we're going to having we're doing this push of batteries now, and you're seeing all kinds of batteries coming in um, to the space. The problem again is maybe the regulatory framework. Where how do those folks get paid? You know, are they providing? What how do which folks get paid? Batteries. So, you know, I think one of the the trading um, uh, rules that we we pay attention to is if you're going to build something that's going to resolve the congestion or fix the problem, you better hedge it beforehand, meaning once once you put that battery in, you solve the problem. So right. any of the congestion or, or right. times, it goes so away. The arb, the arb, arb goes, goes away. away. Yep. You fixed it. So how do we in a market that maybe doesn't have the right tools to, to incentivize the, the batteries to come? Because right now, what we're seeing is they're they're setting down. They're trying to sell ancillary services or time spreads, and as soon as you get them onto the grid, they solve the problem, and then and then there's no spread for them to make money no on. There's no spread for them to capture. So you know, at ERCOT, before wait, before, okay. before you go on, because yeah. I want to, what you just described is something where are, are you saying that folks who put together battery projects maybe modeled a certain amount of profitability for a certain period of time? and they're not getting it? 
which well, is spooking them off of future projects? Well, I would say if you're careful and you've done some sort of hedging. So let's say I have a battery uh, and I can um, do an on-peak, off-peak spread. So I see in the forward markets, I can charge it during the night, I can release it during the day, and I can capture that spread. If they went out and hedged that for you know, a reasonable amount of time, or if they went... Well, what would be a reasonable amount well, of time? Well, I would say the, the markets for those may be five to ten years. You could, okay. you could get it on peak off peak okay. spread done. I think what what you're referring to, which I know in in our wind sector, especially in Texas, wasn't was an issue. The first p- folks who, who put down big wind farms, they knew kind of what their wind farm was gonna do to the congestion in and around their, you know, their interconnection point. Unfortunately they had, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten projects follow them. And now all of a sudden the economics that they had built in are completely different because you can't control, you know, where the next wind farm and the next wind farm get built, and all of a sudden your economics are now negatively impacted because sure. more money's come in, more projects have gotten built. It's easy to get interconnected, and the topography of the the power grid looks different than what you assumed, hmm. you know, in your initial. So the first mover advantage captured the load for a little while. And, and maybe high prices or whatnot. But but you're saying, like any business, the more competition you have, the less potential profit you've got or the more challenges you, you wind up with. And the, the tools that we have to help those wind farms, for example, mitigate that risk are crude and shorter in term. You know, you could hedge their basis out a year, two year, three years, but you can't do it for 10. Like yep. nobody's going to make that market for you. Yep. So does that mean does that does that mean developing wind farms is lots riskier than it used to be or because I, I mean cost feels like they've come down a lot. Yes. So in theory that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing for the consumer, I guess, but if you're building these facilities. I think as an industry what they've done and pivoted it's not just about where the wind flows. Where's where's the good wind resource? It's also transmission and what could the the pricing at that um, interconnection point look like if we get more wind, solar, load, batteries, crypto. You know, it it becomes a much more um, quantitative versus, you know, dealing with the weather guys on the floor, trying to figure out what what could those outcomes look like. And, you know, we as humans have a hard time doing that because we like to use our models we like to use historical data we like to put it in a in you know the 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 model and see what outputs it's much harder for us to say what could happen Mm -hmm. what does the tail look like um and forward views you know the the um the the power profile is going to say the duck curve which again i'm going back to using my industry but basically um you know we used to in a hot summer day the peak load amount of energy everybody's using and it was very predictable you bring in solar and all of a sudden you've got all this energy in the middle of the day um and then you almost overbuild and to where you can't use it so you have to start shutting it off and you get some very strange behaviors that pre that nobody's models would forecast a a shape that instead of looking like a nice uh, parabola now looks like a duck. Uh You know, am am I wrong to think that this is is what uh, Sean Kelly was talking about as he's trying to model these? Amperon. Yeah, a little bit. Right. He's he's 
I think he's more focused on near-term events and well, just and the variations. It just sounds like yeah. This, I mean, well, the complexity, the I mean, new complexities, yes. almost that just didn't exist. Well, it is, and if you think about how much money we have spent collectively to put in smart meters, um, who's we? The market. The market. Uh, okay. You, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. all of us, uh, as a society, we decided, you know what, we're going to make everybody's home have a smart meter mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, and we're going to roll that all out. And it's is that like, true? Do I have a smart you, meter at my home? Uh, you do have a smart meter at your home. I think they're home. Wi-Fi now, right? I feel like that's on a whole new deal. It's a whole new deal. Yeah. Um, yes, all of the... I'm not optimizing my <laughs> anything. If I've got a smart meter, I don't know it, but... Well, you know... They are. <coughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's... it's um, we. It's actually one of my pet peeves is we all have smart meters at our homes. She's saying that how dumb I am about no, no, my no, 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 not even a little bit, Dan. Okay. Um, but, you know, after Winter Storm Uri, one of the fallouts was we Texans made it illegal for retailers to sell you power at your home indexed to a wholesale market. And that sounds like, okay, that's a really bad idea. Why would you want to sell people, you know, indexed? But if you start thinking about optimizing against you know, those price points and, and when there's scarcity across the market, we actually have a tremendous amount of load in the state that that could be shaved, could be shifted, um, and you wouldn't even know it was happening because we had all these smart appliances, mm-hmm. but we're not using them. It's like we've already spent all of the money, um, and, and as an industry, we focus so much on supply side. Uh-huh. Not. Where does the power come from? Yes. Yep. Let's build more mm-hmm. versus how are we using it? Mm-hmm. How could we be more efficient at using it? And are there tools that we already have in our toolbox that would help us not have to build the next big power plant? Yep. And just avoid mm-hmm. that peak. You know, 15 years ago, um, I had my home on a wholesale market uh, product with a Champion Energy local uh, Houston company. And basically what it was, the price at my home for electricity changed every 15 minutes. I could see it on my phone, get little alerts if prices were high. Um, I was on a pilot where if the price went above $75, you think back then the price was usually about 40 or 50. If it went over $75, Champion would send a signal to my smart meter, which was tied to my smart thermostat, and it would raise my air conditioner set point four degrees and the thermostat would glow blue. And at the time, with my little kids at home, they would know if they saw that thermostat glow blue and they shut something off, mom was gonna be really happy. And it actually proves out, it works. I mean, we can shift pool pump loads, EVs, but for whatever reason, we're really struggling to gain momentum around that. And, you know, I can tell you- Humans don't like to, they don't like to- I would think Texans especially, but- but again, well, and information can, is power is what you're telling I me. Think information so is key. And, and I can tell you, it does exactly. have its, you know, unintended consequences. There was a day where we hit a thousand dollars, which was the price cap back then. And I called home and I told my husband to go unplug the beer fridge. And I swear he thought I had three heads. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you want me to go unplug the beer fridge? And I'm like, yeah, it's a refrigerator in the garage. It's a hundred degrees out and prices are a thousand bucks. Go, go unplug the beer. The beer will be fine. You come yeah. back to it, you know? Quick question: How much money would that have saved? Is it is it actual dollars or is it the concept? Um, like we, well, it depends on how long the yeah. event lasted. Back then, we were talking a couple bucks. Yeah, 
Um, so, I mean, so somebody who's getting updated every 15 minutes on their smartphone yeah. is also in, telling their in husband the business, to but, unplug the cell. Yeah. Well, or it was the, one of the only things I couldn't do remote. But um, Sort of like a video game when your kid plays a video game and buys all the in-game apps. Oh. It only takes one month when the bill's really high yeah. for you to say, what this stuff's got to yes. change. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. But I mean, back to your point, and I don't mean to cut you off on, but it is, it's the education aspect of this whole thing. Like there's so many things today that, that I didn't know 12 months ago. I'm the novice in this entire podcast, really. And I, I mean, I understand today more than I've ever known about what's going on in the grid and the, the power of the smart uh, meters, et cetera. There is so much technology that we're not using that little changes that you never notice that you should be doing in your house um, that four degrees. Yeah, that sounds like a lot when you're maybe at home, but when you're not, what does it matter? Yeah. And actually Nest kind of takes over when you're not there and it does adjust that for you. If, if there's no motion in the house, that's a great idea. That technology didn't exist, you know, before mm. I get whatever motion sensor stuff in the house. Anyway, Marianne, one of the things you're saying that's interesting is I think I was going to say 98%. A vast majority of people would say, hell yeah, we want more wind and solar. That's good. I mean, the world's decided we need more renewable resources generating power. And what you're highlighting, and I think it's good for everybody here, is that that's complexity that we may not have, we, we may have to retrofit for to, to adapt to at some point, and, and it's going slower than probably it should. And so is that regulatory? Is it, I mean, why, why aren't we going faster? Why aren't we adapting? What about transmission? Yeah, I think if you look at the time horizon for transmission projects, they're big and they take a long time to implement. I mean, we're looking at more in, in Texas now to help alleviate some of the congestion. We did the, uh, a big project a couple decades ago now um, to, to help get a lot of that wind um, yeah. out of well, West when's, Texas. When's the next big transmission project turning on? Is, yeah. do, I mean, is, do we have any visibility uh, for it? I mean, there's there's smaller projects here and there. I think a, but you're a, talking about something bigger than that. This is this is, and I think one of the problems with IRA is really incentivizing all of this build around these consumers of energy, whether that's green ammonia, green hydrogen, carbon sequestration, uh, putting money into more renewable power. Um, you know, creating more solar, windmills, batteries. Yep but not really thinking about the wires that are required to make it all work. And, and even this last week with the storm we had in Texas and, you know, Austin, friends there out of power for days and days on end, you, we could even harden the infrastructure we do have, burying power lines. Um, you know, Texas, I think we've done a nice job in Houston. CenterPoint's really um, worked real hard to harden our, our, you know, transmission and distribution hmm. here in because we've had to suffer through, you know, the Ikes and the Harveys. Right. And, um, but the parts of the state that really hadn't been impacted by the hurricanes were, were a little bit behind on getting yeah. their, their transmission Does it hardened. take, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned hurricanes and whatnot. Um, a lot of times it takes crisis to create change. And you're essentially saying we've, we've incentivized the demand side of the equation we're not incentivizing the transmission or supply side of the equation uh, that well um, does does it 
I mean, are we going to have a big problem? You said you said scared, and then but kind of underneath was terrified. It is. Um, it's a fragile system, and it shouldn't be. Which it people is, don't it's get cr- because they just flip a switch. But yeah, because yeah. everybody takes it for granted. They don't realize that there mm-hmm. are people out in power stations, twenty-four hour a day, twenty-four hours a day. There are folks on real-time yeah. desks who are making sure that in every second supply and demand are balanced and that we're ready to, to tackle whatever is you know gonna show up on the they, grid. The average person definitely doesn't know that there's daytime traders and nighttime traders that do the seven on, seven off world. Yeah, and, and you know I think that's one of the hardest jobs in our industry is real time trading because you're on shift, mm-hmm. you're dealing with a lot of information coming mm-hmm. at you and when you get to you know, even in in normal, it can be boring because there's everything's running. The, the second there is a crisis, it is there's you know all of a sudden you've got to put all of your training to work and figure out okay which power stations are needing to be dispatched, what's going on with the demand response, did the wind fall off, what is you know the ERCOT telling me I need to do? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tough job. It's very it's very stressful. Yeah. And um, I think you're right. Most most Americans have no idea. No light switch it's a light switch and even when you're you know me hurricane ike eight days with no electricity at the house and you know on day five i'm still tapping the bathroom light thinking that maybe it's going to come on when i walk and it's not plugging the beer fridge in exactly exactly. figure this thing out yeah if you've never lost power i mean things get pretty primal pretty quick right you have a generator in your house now no no i do that was at my post yuri one of the Same. things that, that we heard a lot about around Yuri was it was like we were minutes from crashing the Texas power grid to, to the point that it would have taken months to recover. Was that an over-dramatization or do you think that's accurate? It was accurate. Um, so, you know, at EDF, we were dispatching during that week 52 resources into the ERCOT market. 52 different power sources, mm-hmm. okay. Mostly gas-fired power stations, demand response, some batteries, uh, wind farms, solar. So we, we touched a lot of um, you know assets in the state. And going into, well, we knew on Friday that it was going to be bad. Mm. And at that point, you know, there were already, the wind farms in West Texas were covered in ice. We were getting, you couldn't buy gas at any price. We had power stations that would have been happy to run, but you couldn't find fuel. Um, you, you know, fast forward through the weekend and, and Sunday, I'm telling my then 16-year-old, charge everything you got because we're going to lose power tomorrow. Like, it, uh-huh. and it's probably going to be days. Um, so we had at EDF, we, um, head of our compliance group, slept on the trade floor for four days, four nights, um, head of our demand response, head of regulatory, um, our, our ERCOT rep, uh, and that team s- sitting alongside the real-time operators and, you know, coming into early Monday morning. And what I think actually was the straw that broke the camel's back with Yuri, that cold front got so far south and there's a great map of uh, the counties in the state of Texas and the um, main heating fuel. So think, how, how, do the, how do the homes get heated? And the farther south you go, the less natural gas is, the more baseboard electric. Because mm. if you're in Corpus, you know, how many, how many times are you going to need the heat a year? And so when that cold front got all the way down to Corpus and all, and all of that electric heating turned on, there was not another generator 
in the state that could move up. Uh-huh. And, you know, at that point, the only tool we had as a market was to start turning customers off. And unfortunately, even though we have all these super smart meters on everybody's home, um, our ability to carve out loads, to shut them off proactively, like if you've got anybody in your neighborhood who's on oxygen, like the, the wires company knows mm-hmm. that and they're not going to turn you off. And so they're trying to do an equitable shutdown and mm-hmm. it's taking way longer than they they think. And unfortunately, what happened is wires companies who are saying, I've got to shut load, things are, things are you know, escalating really really fast they started shutting down some compressor compression stations up around dallas and what happened when you turn off a natural gas compressor that's pushing natural gas through a pipeline to a power plant so that it can burn it and make electricity all of a sudden we were getting calls that we're, we're we've lost fuel pressure we're, we're tripping on low fuel pressure so you lost and you can you can look at the ERCOT charts and see a couple big gas-fired plants trip off not because it was too cold or they yeah. were broken, but they had no their, gas their, in the pipeline. No gas in the pipeline, and once they lost those um, system frequency, which you know mentioned earlier, we like it at sixty. It's where That's it belongs. Yep. Um, had degraded to a point where uh, we have two nuclear plants in the state: Comanche Peak and South Texas. And Comanche Peak has some safety equipment. Basically, all gas turbines do. If frequency gets too low, they shut themselves off to protect themselves because otherwise they'll break um and we had been under the threshold for that for the nukes for for and they can only hang there for seven minutes and we were four minutes in wow um meaning they were going to shut down and then you lose that power right and at that point that's when you know a third of the power went out in texas to protect system frequency so that the nukes wouldn't trip wow and you know, my guys on the trade floor, you know, come on, ERCOT, come on, ERCOT, wow. you've got, and, and you're watching live system frequency, or, I mean, it, it was, we were two minutes away. Wow. If Comanche Peak had tripped, there was no more safety net. Every other power station in the state would have tripped on low frequency. And and, and then what happens? Does it take a long time well, to then here's the, here's get everything the, here's back the, up? Where Marianne's, you know, terrifying thing comes in. Then we require on something called Black Start. So, so people talk about you know, wait, wait, so you're, this is when it gets scary? Yeah, it's oh. not even scary yet. Okay, good. Um, Let me make a note of this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people mix up brownouts and blackouts, and those are two two very different brownouts things. Brownouts are, volunt- are, are managed. So planned. a brownout is a wires company opened a breaker to, to, to protect the backbone of the grid. And through URI, the backbone, our hospitals, our nursing homes, stayed electrified. Um, when you have a blackout, that is a total uncontrolled outage of the grid. Everything goes dark. And now you've got, most people don't know, power plants need to be plugged in to turn on. It seems silly, plugged but it's- Plugged into the to electric a grid. grid. Yeah, yeah, they need electricity yeah. to turn on. And so we have, um, you know, in, in our, we have contingency plans. It says, okay, if everything's dark, how do we turn the power grid back on? And this is something we've never had to do yeah. in Texas so the- ever. So theoretically. So we have, uh, 13 power stations in ERCOT, at least we did during URI, that get paid what's called Black Start. And that means that they have to have on-site fuel, and they need to be able to turn on without being plugged into the power grid. Mm-hmm. So typically it's a diesel generator, and they use the diesel generator to start powering up the substation. And, they, and they, it's, it's this really big game of 
how do I re-energize and plug in? Because everything has to be balanced all at the same time. Um, half of those units were broken during the storm. Because of the cold weather? Because of the cold weather. Okay. Um, so if we had black gone start. black and we had to turn everything back on cold and so many things were broken, when the ERCOT CEO came out and said six weeks to get the power grid back on, I mean, that's, that's what he was referring to was, you know, even in, and as an industry, we practice black start. So if you were dispatching a unit that's got black start capacity, we practice it. Um, simulated and even simulated it's really hard to like when you try to get Austin and San Antonio synchronized I mean half the time they will trip off and you have to start all over again and then start thinking about how are we communicating with one another used to be one of one of the things that bothered me a whole lot during URI is uh, at one point I walked out onto the real-time desk and I'm like, where's the red phone? We used to have this red phone. So it used to be a requirement that you would have an old copper line phone and no electricity needed, so it's old school. Um, unfortunately, the telecom companies have, those. that's no they longer a thing. They yep. don't exist anymore. So now you're, if your phone has to be plugged in and you don't have power, okay, that's out. Now I've got my cell phones, but how long do we have for cell mm-hmm. phone towers? What's the, what's the UPS life? battery life on cell phone towers what are the chances that the guys sitting at the power plant themselves who you got to communicate with and talk to have their cell phone i mean it the the i was asked and now i'm terrified yeah you should be well i mean two questions one that's the the best explanation i've heard we've listened to other podcasts and done research and we've heard stories that's the best yuri explanation i've ever heard and in the worst way possible (laughs) so so thank you. Thank the you, truth, I think. The truth is not, <laughs> is not comforting. No, truly terrifying. Wonderful. And then second, and, I, with, and I'm not joking, how do you not have a generator? Like don't, I mean, really. What? In my house? Yes. Well, I feel like it'd be cheating. You know, I'm a power girl. I feel like I, my part of my job is to keep the power grid up and running. Yeah. And Burn the ships. Yeah. yeah. I get that. I get that. <laughs> But My husband is a big I mean, advocate. Did you hear He's what been, you just said? Yes. Okay. No, I know. I, I get know. the burn the ships yeah. mentality. I do. But. but and you know, it's and it's crazy. What, you know, I think this demonizing of natural gas and no, you know, new gas hookups in New York. And I mean, the how we got That's through dumb. Uri was our gas fireplace and our gas stove. Yes. And we, I mean, you, we're going to put all of our eggs in the electrification basket. We haven't hardened the grid, and we're going to take away the other fuel types that could help us in an emergency. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be like we're putting ourselves in a pretty scary place, and we're doing it self-inflicted. Yeah. Um, this is where we're supposed to say, this podcast sponsored by Generac. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, look, we, we're big believers, as we told you, kind of off air that this podcast is to educate and inform and it is we are believers in all the above in energy in transition right i mean we believe that there is a a lot of cool technology coming out that's going to benefit you know your 18 and your 20 year olds and and our kids and and we want to help promote those ideas but at the same time there is a there's a need for oil and gas as well and the people that are in it and part of that is educating that group of people as what their role can be in this next you know generation of, of energy as well power and it is scary because i almost think we have to go all the way back to elementary school because right now and you know having teenage and now 20 year olds I can tell you there's not a lot of excitement about going into 
oil and gas. I mean, it's, it's people, the, the, the folks coming right out of university, mm-hmm. you know, they want to work on a generation desk or they want to do renewables. They don't want to touch the right. gas plant. Sure. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's such a, it's a, we have a branding problem. There, natural gas is such, has been such an amazing, um, you know, part of our energy infrastructure. We are so blessed to have so much natural resource, you know, here underground, um, that a lot of other places in the world, you know, aren't as lucky as we are here in the United States. And instead of embracing how to do that better and cleaner, we've we've kind of demonized an entire industry to where the number of petroleum engineers coming out of university is a fraction of what it was mm. two decades ago. Um, so you know where are we going to get the talent to help us figure out all of this? We've got to we've got to make it appealing to to you know this next generation of thinkers. There's either, it's either a crisis or money, one of the two or both combined. Uh, last question before we shift over to another area of focus for you: um, Do you think did we learn anything from Yuri? Do you think these things are now? Great question repaired to the extent that it's a little less terrifying or yeah I th- you know there's been some really great work that came out after after storm yuri winterization so critical infrastructure required now require yeah. it i mean if you're is it i mean it, it's kind of silly that we didn't require it before mm-hmm. but you know in texas we really focus on those 100 degree afternoons mm-hmm. in august and we worry less about the freezing days 22 in, degree yeah. in february mm-hmm. um so, so I think that the, the winterization piece clearly, um, the communication between, I think one of the problems during URI was nobody was in charge. When you think about, you know, you had ERCOT, but they're like air traffic control. They're just trying to make sure the planes get safely to, to where they are. They don't own them. They don't operate them. They just are giving dispatch instructions. You had the Railroad Commission overseeing our natural gas. You had the public utility. You had the governor's office. I mean, there were a, a lot of folks trying to fix it, but there was no clear communication plan. Who is calling the shots? How are we going to get through this? And and a lot of... And that's changed now? I Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, they certainly have, have tied uh, the Railroad Commission and the Public Utility Commission and the governor's office are much more in tune. You know, talking about when we have a, a hurricane in the Gulf, you see it up on the freeway signs. Well, we don't do that. Um, you know, I think with, with Yuri coming into the storm, we thought, it, not, not me personally, but the, if you turned on the TV, which I was watching nonstop Sunday, it was, don't worry, you might be out of power 15 minutes. I mean, like I said, my kid thought I was nuts. I was like, no, go charge everything, your ski vest, like make sure everything's plugged in. Um, we did not do a good job of making sure people were aware of how bad it could be mm-hmm. and getting them prepared. Because you could get, you know, our, I mean, we know over 200 people died directly attributable to the storm. And we didn't get folks to places with natural gas fireplaces and stoves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a shame in this day and age that we didn't do a better job managing that crisis event and coming out of it we've got a, a much clearer road um one of the things ERCOT when they they run the planning assessment their worst case scenario was 2011 so when they did their planning they used the 2011 winter storm as their base case or worst case scenario clearly things could be worse than they've already been. And so now when we look at planning, when we look at how to manage through, um, but 
you know, when we learn it in ERCOT, we just had a Christmas storm up in PJM, PJM under forecasted load 10,000. Which 000. is an East Coast power. East Coast, Pennsylvania, yeah. New Jersey, Maryland. What, what 2011 storm was there? Are you talking about Houston 2011? Yeah, it was, it was a winter storm. I don't even remember. So it must not have been that bad. Well, to, it was bad. Was but it? It was like a day long, okay. not five days long. Yeah. It didn't go as far south. It didn't have the ice. I mean, it, it again. A Texas storm, obviously. Humans, not just were, we tend to be very optimistic beasts, and we hate to think about the probability of bad things happening. And so we kind of tend to downplay our brain normally. Well, you, just, you mentioned Ike earlier. Yes. Right? I, Ike came after, what was it, Rita? Yes. And then Ike was very mild compared to Rita. Rita was this crazy thing. And then Ike was right. So everyone's like, oh, see, and we got hyped up for no reason in Houston anyway. Right. And then you're right. I can see where you, we would, would want to play or downplay, I should say, whatever's going to happen. Yep. Let's shift gears a little bit. So you're, you're at the, you're involved in, as a director of the first reserve, one of the first reserve um, SPACs. So that's been highs and lows in the SPAC market. Tell us a little bit, what's, what are you looking for in that vehicle and how's it gone? Um, so, yeah, so SPAC prior to uh, joining the First Reserve um, Sustainable Growth that's, is the name of the fund, yeah. uh, the name of the SPAC. Um, didn't have a lot of experience in that, but certainly know a lot about power markets sure. and, and, and operations and how things work. and. I think in this, this clearly the SPAC market has been challenged um, for, for a multitude of reasons, pipe investing, the market in general, number of opportunities, the number of SPACs chasing the, the viable ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you start see celebrities and tennis stars out SPACing, right. you think maybe it's gone too fast, mm-hmm. too far. I mean, you are on a podcast. I know. This, this is celebrity status at some level, so... I'm going to have to put that on my resume. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I think with, with the SPAC and, and First Reserve Sustainable Growth is really targeted toward renewables, sustainability. In that space, when you're looking for strong management team, a really good idea that's scalable, that's cash flow, that's quantifiable, you can get excited about, the, the, um, it's hard to find something that checks all of those pocket mm-hmm. boxes. So uh, – I have learned so much. I've met some really amazing people. You know, I think a friend of mine, venture capital, says you've got to look at 100 deals before you pick one. If you're doing your job, mm-hmm. you've got to look at 100 things. And I think with SPACs in general, to have that amount of discipline to continue to look and not get excited by, you know, the shiny new thing and really yep. test and figure out, is this going to be something that I – want to have my name behind mm-hmm. um it's it's I come back to it's, it's it takes a lot of discipline to make sure you stay true to your how do you goals. do that well i think you surround yourself with other people who are like-minded and yeah and and just just so everybody knows and so we're clear your role at the first reserve renewal i'm sorry i'm, I'm sustainable sustainable growth, growth um it's not as a blocking and tackling, evaluating a hundred deals, right? No, it's at but the, they're bringing the pipeline right, of deals. It's to at us. the board level evaluating yes, what the what the folks yes. are. Independent director. Yeah. So yes, not out 
combing, but but seeing the pipeline, talking about the opportunities. What do we think? Is it viable? Mm -hmm. Is it scalable? What's the barriers to entry? What's the competition profile? Do we right. think it'll be, you know, do, do we think consumers will, will buy into it? How quickly are mm -hmm. electrification of the transportation fleet going to, I mean, it, it ends up being this, you know, multifaceted review. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some amazing up and coming companies with some really great ideas. They're just probably a bit before SPAC ready. So it's it's really waiting and looking for the ones that, you know, again, check all the boxes mm -hmm. and right. um, are ready to become a, a do you public think, company. Do you think the appropriate companies are a bigger hurdle or is it the, the pipe capital that seem, that comes with all of these SPACs? The, the, the fact that SPAC investors are now redeeming at high levels mean you got to bring other capital which means you've got to go out and raise these pipes that go with the SPACs, which has gotten really hard too. Do you think it's capital availability or ideas or both? I think it's D all of the above. Uh. I think it's it's getting the right, it's lightning in a bottle. You got to find the right idea. The, it's got to have the right team. It's got to have, you know, contracts that are going to create some cash flow that you can have a, a real growth story that's you can hold yourself accountable to. Um, and to get all of those pieces to show up in this market, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. One of the things we've seen in this, in this process with this podcast is that there's a like a lot of times perception is not reality. Uh, the perception is absolutely the more wind and solar resources we can get, the better. And you've told us, yes, as long as you build everything else out with it. Mm. Um, the perception, I think, is that, well, any energy transition idea is getting funded these days and the capital is just crazy aggressive and whatnot. And almost everybody that we've had come on that talks about capital says, yeah, we're not doing so many more things and finding the right deals is hard. It's, it's one of these things. I did a presentation recently and I, I said, this is this big, huge growth area that everyone's excited about and finding deals that actually work, the right valuations, the, the right everything, it's really hard. So everybody's excited and it's hard to find something to buy, which is kind of, I mean, I'm it's I'm surprised it's that the teams are hard to find, the, the people, you know, that there's this, it's hard to find good people to help with these ideas. That's Talent what, is tough right now. I mean, across the board, EDF, you know, looking at people, when I started, you know, in early in my career, I thought I was going to be a lifer. Mm -hmm. And what you find is the, there's there's very mu much less loyalty to companies that this this generation work life balance is really important. They want to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. They, you know, commute office versus home. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so many things that come in and finding talent at whether it's at, at these startups or, you know, utility, it's the people side of the business is really hard right now. We've we've hit peak people, peak good people. Yeah, yeah. I I do think that it's it, you know we've we've had other guests on where I think that there's a level of people available that the venture capital and the the, the I I think there's a way to connect those people that just isn't hitting. That's really what was one of the questions I had earlier um, is how can how can we help facilitate? Because I do feel like, as I mentioned earlier, I do feel like there's a lot of good project managers, a lot of good people that just aren't connecting to this next level of 
venture capital opportunities, or, set, opportunities yeah. right now. And I'm trying to figure out why is that? What is that gap there that? There you go, Josh. That's your new. Well, that, I'm, that's your I'm, new I'm a, opportunity. I'm a people, that's your new company. That. He's I am gonna, good at that. I'm trying to figure out why is that not yeah. connected because I don't think it's as there's yeah. that big of a gap. But. Yeah. Let's shift gears yeah. one more time and then we'll do our lightning round. So the the other thing that you've lived is for those of us in and around the energy sector, the the world of trading is, you know, I. I'm, we're skewed by the negative outcomes or the perception is skewed by the negative outcomes, whether it's Enron that blows up or Amaranth, which went down at one point in time. Um, is, is trading, energy trading these days, is it, is it the wild west of three good years and then you go broke or is it a much more systematic blocking and tackling kind of thing? Talk to them, is it wild west or not? Much less wild west than it was 20 years ago okay mm -hmm. you know i mentioned you know being at dynagy and ah! it was you get a spreadsheet you get an idea you can put it together you can sell it to management and off to the races you go um trading today is is much more complicated than it was 20 years mm -hmm. ago an example i would give when i when i traded texas power at dynagy when the market first deregulated, uh -huh. there were three for the pilot. There were three zones in Texas, uh, Houston, North and South. Um, there was a price every 15 minutes uh, for those three zones. So in a given year, just over 100,000 pricing points that things could be indexed to. Uh -huh. We did that on spreadsheets. You could do it on spreadsheets. 100,000 in a year is not not. Yep. unmanageable yep if you look at the number of nodes and hubs and load zones that are currently pricing every 15 minutes in texas today it's over 26 million pricing points per year you can't do that in excel anymore mm -hmm. so when you're trading and whether it's physical power financial power ancillaries racks it is, it is much more data intensive. You've got to have, it's data, data, data. You have quants who are helping you take all of that data and turn it into information that you can use to trade around. Um, and I think one of the, the things that we have done at EDF that was you know, really great was also building up a, a risk team that not only is looking at your positions and your risk and, and your VAR and, and you know, the position limits and all Bar of that. is value at risk. Josh, just just another knack. I'm, another. I'm, I'm trying He's to be the acronym king. Today. No, it's, yes, value at risk. So how much do you think you could lose in any given day? Everything. Um, oh, sorry, I thought no, that was a, that's a bad answer. You wanted me to answer that. You get fired for that in trading. I believe you. I used to live with a trader. He was, he had a rough, it was one of buddies. He worked at Conoco. He'd have a great month, bad days. And one of his friends is like, yeah, my friend got fired. I was like, why is it? Well, he had two bad days in a row, gone. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's um it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude mm. uh, to 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 live on a trade floor. Now there are people who thrive there, and you know I I have worked on trade floors the last twenty years, and I love them. Yeah, I love the adrenaline. I love the pricing volatility. I love that you'll see something happen in real time. So this minute, some big power plant trip prices went high. The real-time desks start shouting over to the day-ahead desk. Hey, we're seeing a print. I think this is real. Frequency's dropping. It's, it's something material. You get day-ahead traders trading. You get term traders. The power traders start talking to the gas traders. Like, you can see it. 
and and you know when it works and you've got a team of people who are just again you know experts in their field excited about sharing their information with other people on the floor because we do better together um, it is an incredible place to work and I think with trading and you know I mentioned the amount of data and how quickly things are moving you know 15 years ago you could put bets on and a lot of volatility in the back of the curve so you know today it has moved all to the front if you look at natural gas it's trading with a two handle yes it is what do we know uh, today that we didn't know in August when it had a nine handle I mean it, do we do we really think the world has significantly changed in the last six months that what we thought back then was totally upside down from what we're thinking today that kind of volatility changes mm-hmm. is you know something I haven't seen yeah. and you see a couple times I can think back to you know uh, Enron mm-hmm. we saw a bunch of volatility back then yep. um, Lehman Brothers time frame you know 2006 2007 we were building LNG import facilities because we thought we were going to run out of natural gas yeah. and you know I remember customers locking in eight dollar nine dollar gas back then we're gonna you know it's gonna be high in perpetuity and you know God bless George Mitchell and a c- couple short years later we've got fracking we've got gas mm-hmm. literally coming out our ears mm. um, building converting our LNG import facilities to export facilities and really becoming a global energy supplier yep. which first time since Rockefeller yep. the US found itself in that dominant position mm-hmm. I think our energy space is ripe for another George Mitchell type event of what is go- somebody's gonna think of something somebody's gonna do something invent something and it is going to cause us to gap again it's gonna what's back- that gonna what's gonna be around what is it I know that's the best part is nobody knows or if they do know, they're not telling just yeah. yet. What you're what you're describing, what I was going to say is that you're describing a trading environment where you can't be that person that has a hunch and makes a bunch of money for your firm on a spec basis. Except you just described nine dollar gas going to two, which somebody with a hunch would they have been able to express that in a trading firm? Sure. Yes, and they do. Um, and I, but I think you've got to do it in reasonable liquid markets where you can exit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, men- trade floor, making sure you don't have herd mentality mm-hmm. where essentially all your traders have the same bias. Yep. That's, that's yep. you know, from a firm perspective, really dangerous place to be. And so, you know, I, I mentioned the risk team having worked with some of the brightest minds in that space. And when you are looking... And, and for the last several years at EDF, you know, all of the desks making money. Nobody, nobody outsized, nobody's betting the, the firm on red or black. It's small calculated bets that can be exercised over time, exited when, and you, you know, it's, it's, it's stop losses are really important. Again, having discipline around your traders, understanding why they're convicted to their trade. Um, so there's no meme stock risk in a good trading organization these days. I, I, I think you always are worried about that rogue trader. But I think there are enough tools that you can put in place to make sure mm-hmm. that even if they have a couple of bad days, you don't have to fire them because they haven't lost yeah, outsized. Yeah, they can't lose enough money. Right. What's next for you? 
So you you started off by saying you you're quote unquote unemployed, and there's a lady so many of leisure. Yes, a lady of leisure. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> there's so many things out there. So what's what's next for you? You know, I have I have decided again this this break from having a day to day job uh, has been a gift. I realize I miss showing up with other people, working with a team. I was not made to You're stay You're not ready home. to go to the beach yet, huh? No. Um, I love power markets. I love gas markets. I think that if you can um, align yourself with a company that has a vision on how to bring reliable, reasonably priced, and uh, responsibly sourced energy to the markets, that is going to play no matter what segment, state, market you're in. Pe- people want reasonable energy price, reliable, and they want it done in a responsible manner. And if, if for me, it's looking for the right place for me to help, um, you know, Do that, that continue. Yeah. So, and there, there, it's like you mentioned the the Cheesecake Factory menu. There's there's lots of opportunities out there. Um, just just making sure I got my hell yeah mm-hmm. moment. I like it. Before we move past this, I, I listened, I did a little research on you, and um, there's a couple of great interviews and that you've done. My grandfather was my best man in my wedding, and I loved him. Don Lowry was his name. And you came in, and before we started the interview, you talked about you bought your grandmother's house. So there's an interview you did back in 18 where you talked about both of your grandmothers. If you don't mind, I would love for you to share just a moment of that. Maybe not that interview, just two of your, your both of your grandma's stories. I'd love the audience to hear about these it's, ladies. I um, have been so blessed to have such strong female women in my life. Um, you know, I've lost both grandmothers. Still have my mom, my sister, my cousins, but um, my gram and my nan. So my nan was my paternal grandmother. Um, she stay at home. She was a secretary. There was there was this day that uh, I was in college. It was snowing, and um, I would normally call my grandmother's on the weekend. And so pick up the phone and I call Nan and I say, Nan, what are you doing? And she's in her seventies at this point. She says, I'm up on the roof. I was like, What are you doing on the roof? She said, I had to shovel it off. Your grandfather can't get up here anymore. So so my seventy some odd year old grandmother had gotten up on the roof to shovel the snow off. Um, but that's what she did. If there was something that needed to be done, she rolled up her sleeves and she did it. And she was she was tenacious and, and very task-oriented and got it done. Um, later that same day, I was doing a calculus recitation with some friends and we'd gotten stuck. And I pick up the phone and they say, who are you going to call, your tutor? And I said, no, I'm calling my grandmother. Um, my maternal grandmother, Graham, um, was an amazing, amazing lady, uh, Patricia Dockstader. She uh, was a chemistry high school teacher. My grandfather had lied about his age to go into the Marines. Mm. He had come back from World War II and wanted to get his GED, ended up in my grandmother's class. And they fell in love and got married and had... He married the teacher. He married the teacher. I have a newspaper article. It's super sweet. And it says exactly that. Um, And so they got married, had nine babies. And uh, when number nine got to kindergarten, my grand told my grandfather she was going to go back to school. And so she taught high school um, earth science and chemistry, and she took classes at night. Uh, She got her master's in chemistry and then her master's in physics. And at 68 years old, uh, she finished her PhD. (laughs) 
in uh, nuclear physics. Unreal. Her thesis was on nuclear particle acceleration theory. Um, Albany State University, there was a part on the nuclear accelerator named after my grandmother. She invented it. So Graham um, was, you know, typical Graham, baked apple pies, knitted, quilted, but she rebuilt laptops and she had litmus paper in her underwear drawer. Like it's, um, <laughs> it is incredible. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, that story is really great. Grandma, grandparents are amazing. I'm glad to hear no, that. No, I miss them every day. Yeah. That's awesome. I loved it. And then one la last little thing here, when we were talking, you know, the one of the questions that Dan had prepared was, you, just you being a, I, Leslie Byers, our other co-host on this, and she would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this in her stead here, that um, that interview was in 2018, the one I had heard about, so five years ago. Being a female in energy, has it gotten better, different? What, what does it feel like, look like <coughs> for you? And um, is, is the world changing? Are there more females in energy? To run in, do you run into more these days in the STEM programs? And the quality of applicants coming in and out? How does that look? Um, it's getting better. Okay. It's still got a long way to go. I think when you look around the industry and, and you know women on boards and women in CEO roles, like you're starting, people tend to, if they can see themselves in those positions, are more likely to, to try. And, um, you know, in power specifically, the typical way in is through our real-time trading desk. Those are, you know, the, the job you have right out of school. And it's shift work. A lot of women don't want to do shift work um, and so you know I think there's a, a bit of a bias from day one and finding other ways to get talented females in mm -hmm. and, and not to say that we don't have talented females on real time because I love hiring females into real time and I've had some stellar amazing ones um, I think the it is it is getting better I think there's there's more opportunities one of the groups I was on the board of Gulf Coast Power Association um, for 12 years and you know a decade ago we had a board meeting after our big conference and everybody's high-fiving about how amazing the conference was and you know I raised my hand and I said you know day one we had four panels five people on a panel one keynote I said we did not have a single female on the stage not one and it's not that there's not talented women out there who could, but if you're not thinking about it and, and how to, how to, you know, so they said, okay, Marianne, we're going to start the empowering women's, you can be in charge of it. Um, and what we did is we started making sure that when we put our conferences together, that we had female, uh, speakers on the stage. We worked on mentoring, so creating some mentorship circles and, you know, be mentor, mentees, get them together, um, my my first mentorship group is still we still get together awesome. from time to time um just creating ways for people to know that you're not alone and that other people are going through um you know energy is hard it's it's <laughs> that violent volatility does sometimes bring out the worst in people having thick skin you know dodging the cursing it's 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 an interesting environment it's not for everybody but you also want it to be to where you don't have to be the loud, obnoxious trader to do mm -hmm. well there. You got to mm -hmm. make sure everybody gets, you know, a seat at the table. Right. You listen to the voices. And and one of the things I worry about with, you know, what we went through with COVID is we saw a lot of our female leadership uh, leave and not come back because um, they were doing, you know, taking care Family. of the kids. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I do hope that as we continue to recover from 
the pandemic and get people back to the offices and that that you know kind of can can fix that um but it is incredible i think the other thing renewables mm-hmm. has brought a lot of females into the space mm-hmm. that wouldn't have come in through the traditional yes, trading it's a gender gender neutral profession or it feels yes. like it right it doesn't feel as you you don't the you know good old boys club oil and gas kind of landman mm-hmm. you, you know you, you you feel much more um of a diversity element yeah in that space dodging the cursing that's i like that I've, <laughs> well i i was going to say it, it it this can be dangerous territory talking about issues like these but but um there are stereotypes and stereotypes exist for a reason the the cursing trading floor mentality exists because there's a lot of people that do it that way what you just said is it doesn't have to be done that way um and but you got to be ready to go in and deal with the environment mm-hmm. you know whatever it is you can't let bad behavior linger and you know i i really believe it's a top down what is expected what you know how do we going to work together with respect and we don't have to agree and we can argue and we can get loud but at the end of the day we can go have a beer together right. it's i mean you really have to make sure that you create an environment where you can have that open dialogue cuz you need the conflict people are going to disagree 100%. on on you know what position to put on how right. big of a position and what's when do we sure. get um and yeah, no, I think I think it, it sometimes women have a harder time seeing themselves succeed in that environment. Yeah, even if they're equally as capable. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's lightning round time. I love it. I'm ready. So, Miriam. That was an awesome. Yes. Truly interview. I, I'm really enjoying this so far. Yeah. Now you're in trouble. Okay. So the rules of the lightning round are... You've told us a lot about yourself and, you know, the podcast gives us a chance to kind of figure out who you are. And this is also a way to figure out who you are, but you don't get to explain yourself with these questions. So it's kind of short answer. Yes, no, whatever. These are some good ones. Yeah, I know. Josh, why don't you start? Yeah, great job here, buddy. Um, Single word or short answers only. Ready? Okay. And the clock starts. Uh, Los Angeles or Las Vegas? Los Angeles. Cocktails or wine? Wine. Cash or crypto? Cash. Are you bullish or bearish for the S&P 500 for the rest of 2023 from here? With a gun to my head? Yes. (laughs) Proverbial gun. Bearish. Land Rover or Land Cruiser? Tesla. Ah. Does the Ukraine conflict continue into 2024? Unfortunately, yes. Italian food or Mexican food? Italian. Italian. Beyonce. You guys need to watch the video, everybody, to see that answer. Yeah. Beyonce or Adele? Swifty. She is just killing this round. Uh, Work from the office or work from home? Office. Do you think we're going to have another IRA type bill here in the U.S. within the next three years? No. Um, unhedged long or unhedged short? Long and wrong versus short and fired. There we go. Will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl within the next decade? 
No. Go Bills. Oh, <sighs> I like Josh Allen. There we go. This could have been your year. Marianne Wait. Berlinski. Before we let oh. it off the hook, who is Swifty? Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. Oh, I'm sorry. You've got a you've got a ten year old girl. I know, but I, what are we calling her Swifty. Should I know this? Yes, you should know this. Okay, I didn't know this. Swift. Although you don't, you have three boys. I do. Okay, so Swifty. I like Taylor Swift. So she knows, and and you don't, and it, in theory, it should be reversed. So I know the new, the new album. Yeah, see, I'm all into this, but I didn't call it Swift. And Land Cruiser was the correct answer on that. Marianne Belinsky, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Energy and Transition Podcast. Really appreciate it. We'll awesome. have you back. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.